It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host David Feldman. And Ralph is off today. He's let the kids off to play because we're live Zooming today, David. We have a virtual studio audience. And it's packed, and we're going to hear from many of them today. But first, let's tell you what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about corporate predators and how they're preying on our children, tempting them with junk foods, violent programming, over-medication, isolating virtual reality and social media, and much more. And parents or teachers are being routinely undermined as a result. So these corporate hucksters believe they can get away with anything when it comes to marketing to children. And we've covered this commercial assault on our youngest and most vulnerable on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour before. But now it's time to move to the next critical stage. What can be done about it? And that is the subject of today's show, co-sponsored by the American Museum of Tort Law. Our guests will be Susan Lynn, author of Who's Raising the Kids? Big Tech, Big Business, and the Lives of Children. And Claire Nader, author of You Are Your Own Best Teacher, Sparking the Curiosity, Imagination, and Intellect of Tweens. Children's rights expert, Professor Robert Felmuth of the University of San Diego Law School will serve as moderator of this vitally important discussion. Steve and I will join the discussion later on and we'll bring our virtual audience into the conversation for a live Q&A. And as always, somewhere in the middle, We'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber, because it wouldn't be a Ralph Nader radio hour if we didn't check in with the corporate crime reporter. But first, to kick things off, I'd like to introduce to you the director of the American Museum of Tort Law, Melissa Bird. Melissa? Thank you, Steve, for the kind introduction. Welcome, everyone. The American Museum of Tort Law is proud to co-sponsor today's discussion on the Ralph Nader radio hour live. We are here today to discuss what can be done about corporate predators targeting our youth. But before we do that, we here at the museum would like to take this opportunity to invite all who are listening to take a virtual tour on our website, which is www.tortmuseum.org, paying special attention to our dangerous toy exhibit, which further elucidates the truth that corporate marketing efforts often override safety concerns. It is my pleasure to introduce our moderator today for today's discussion. He's a national expert on children's rights, Robert Felmuth. Robert Felmuth worked as a Nader's Raider from 1968 to 73 in the early days of the consumer movement. He has gone on to become the Price Professor of Public Interest Law at the University of San Diego and he founded their Children's Advocacy Institute in 1983. Since then, the Institute has sponsored 100 statutes and 35 appellate cases involving child rights. Today, it has offices in Sacramento and Washington, DC. He is also the co-author of the leading law textbook, Child Rights and Remedies. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Bob Felmuth. Thank you, I really appreciate it. I'm very pleased to have with me uh, two of the best authors in the field, Claire Nader and Susan Lynn. I wanted to begin, though, by talking a little bit, just for a few minutes, about the law and the changes that have occurred in technology that cause us great concern. We have, in the last 25 years, 
a radical change in how children receive information. They don't receive it on a television set that is being watched by the whole family or on radio. They receive it by communications that are massive, very inexpensive to transmit, and intimately received by the recipient in a screen and in words right in front of their faces. That's without parental knowledge, usually. The world of the child is increasingly an internet world that is being determined by those who are originating that internet transmission. And by the way, people who are originating transmissions do not even have to identify who they are. That's been a big deal for me because I wrote the entire board of Facebook and asked them to simply require anyone who makes any post at all or any communication at all to identify who they are as a part of the First Amendment. Because it's not just the person uttering the statement that has First Amendment rights. The audience has some First Amendment rights, too. And I think those rights include the right to know who is talking to decide whether or not I'm going to listen, I'm going to hear, I'm going to spend my time, and I'm going to be able to judge credibility. And I can do that if only if I know who's talking. And what's happening now is lie, 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 lie about who's talking. The hacking that's going on is endemic. I was a victim myself two days ago of, of terrible hacks. And it's become legion. It's, it's everywhere. And the children are victims of it, too. In fact, they're victims that do not have alternatives to compensate or to, or to fight back. Now, we have a, the tort museum here, which is very important. And the tort is, by the way, an act or omission that causes injury to another and is a civil wrong. It's a very broad term. It can be emotional or physical harm. It can be intentional or it can be negligent. The problem, of course, is that with this modern technique we have now of massive communications, you don't have the ability to get into court because the individual wrongs are small. No one's going to go to court on a $5 matter or a $100 matter or even a $5,000 matter. It's not going to happen. Courts essentially barred to people who do not have $10,000, $50,000, dollars $200,000 at risk. The only way it gets into court for a decision is through a class action. So a tort class action is a critical mechanism to vindicate any public right today. There are two other mechanisms that can also police statute on point, and there have been three or four statutes enacted recently, which I'd be happy to talk about if people are interested. There's a public official acting like the FTC has recently, and as others public agencies have acted and prosecutors have acted. And you've got you know all sorts of things that can happen here. You've got mandamus actions that can be brought if the government's involved in failing to police something or abusing something. And that's a kind of action that we like to bring in my organization. But if it's not mandamus, if it's not public official, you need that class action, need the ability to bring the class action. So that's why the tort museum is an important element of consumer rights today. So anyhow, that's really when I wanted to get off my chest. So I feel better already. We have been involved <laughs> at the Children's Advocacy Institute in all sorts of public official acts through statutes. We've enacted the pool safety statute in California that lowered child drownings by 60%. We have playground safety law we did. We did have a gun safety bill we did. We have a bike safety bill we did. We have, we have a model statute exchange so the states can, can share. I'm on the chair of the policy committee of the Partnership for America's Children with representatives or organizations in 42 state capitals. And we're trying to get when a state does a good job, and California has really taken the lead in the issues we're going to be discussing today in terms of disclosure and abuse by media and privacy rights. Privacy rights are part of the California Constitution, in fact. Theoretically, there's no reason why other states can't replicate what California is doing. And we're hoping to do that with basically a website which has model state statutes for people to share and upgrade. Anyhow, that's one of the things we've been doing. 
In any event, I wanted to bring Claire and obviously and Susan into this conversation. Claire has a amazing book, your own your own best teacher, which is you can see it up there in the in her uh, thing where she her picture is as well. A very very important book. It talks about how children can be really taught to be self-motivating and self-enlightened. She's got three historic examples with uh, Benjamin Franklin, Frederick Douglass, and Helen Keller, which I love. And then she's got discussions of the issue we're discussing today, the beauty business, great pillars of our justice system, the law of contracts. She talks about cashless kids. She talks about the credit industry. She talks about Facebook. She talks about the internet. She even talks about the law of torts. Claire, can you please tell us how you think children interact and suffer from what's happening with the internet? Thank you very much, Bob. How they suffer, Susan Lynn in her book, Big Tech, Big Business and the Lives of Children, is outlined and written in terrific detail. It scares me to death, as a matter of fact. I want to run away from the lives of children under these conditions. But I can run to a different atmosphere for children, if you will, and that's what I try to put in my book, that I speak, there's much written about the harms and how children suffer and how big companies make money off of them, little profit centers, how they undermine parental authority. But there's no book that I know of that speaks directly to the tweens themselves, the children themselves, and teenagers, really. I like it because they have a voice, and they are assets. Before they become teenagers, they're tweens. They're not kiddies anymore. And they have a sense of what's right and what's wrong. They have what I call moral authority. And so they do wonderful things. The book begins with examples of these kids. Felix Binkbinder, who was on the show, the radio show, some years ago when he was a youngster, and he was taken with what happened in Kenya, and they planted trees to clean the air and so on and so on. And the leader of that green movement got the Nobel Prize. So he had an example, and he wanted to plant trees in Germany, and not a million trees, a billion trees. That's another asset that this youngster had and that age group has. They don't think that there's any limit. Why not? If there's a solution, they'd have this practical idealism, which is a terrific asset to have when there's too much cynicism out there by the adults. So they always undermine what these children can do. You're not old enough. And they set out to prove, I have examples in the book, proves that they're not too young to act or too, they have to wait until they're older. So they do move and they have moved on a number of issues. The most noteworthy and the most public is Greta, but there are many, many other examples. I have the example of Kavanaugh Bell in the book and how he was bullied. So his answer to bullying, he said to his mother, show me how I can spread positivity. And he was off to the races probably still is, helping people here and there and cheering up elders who thought, look at this child. They have a sense of being aware. That was important to me. They have to be aware of what's around them. And that's why they're able to notice. And this book can help them notice. 
And I think of it as a partner to Susan's book. Susan's book, Big Tech, Big Business, and the Lives of Children, lays out the harms, the damage that's done by these big tech companies and how helpless they make parents undermining their authority in the first time in history, I think. I wanted to, to mention one other thing is if we're going to have the internet and we're going to have any kind of requirement of disclosure at all, let's disclose you're our own best teacher to these students because if, this, if the students can read this book, it will have a major impact in self-confidence and in understanding what they can do and the limitations of other people and the really boundless potential of themselves. And it's a wonderful book. It really is. And I've written a review and I've written a, tried to get the New York Times and the Washington Post to publish my review of it, but they won't do it for some reason. I don't know. Anyhow, now we have also Susan Lynn, and she's done a campaign for commercial free children who's raising the kids. She talks about big tech. She talks about the fact that it's not that business is evil. It's not that they're trying to harm people affirmatively or anything. They're just out there making money. They're trying to make money. They're trying to market. They're trying to sell. She describes it as amoral. And I think that's probably accurate. They do not care. And she has an example of Alexa for kids, which I think is pretty hilarious. She has some amazing metaverse facts about it's controlled by corporations, the materialism, the image. She has a wonderful counterexample of Fred Rogers, which I very much appreciated because I loved him when I was growing up. But maybe Susan, you can kind of fill everybody in on why you think it's dangerous and what you think is happening as a result of the marketing based on sales to children directly without even parent involvement? Yeah, I think that what the new media has done, which, you know, certainly television began and radio also, is allow corporations direct access to children and corporate values and the values that benefit children, they just aren't the same. Children need to spend most of their time with people who care about them, who love them, who want the best for them. And instead, they're you know, spending a lot of time not in person with corporate CEOs, but with the values and the intent of those people. And I think you know, there's a lot of concern about screen time and people talk about screens you know are a problem it's the business model of the people who make the devices and the programming it's the business model that is really harming children yeah it's not you say it's not maliciously intended it's just they don't care and they're doing something else and it has collateral effects that, that they don't monitor or care about at all and I, I wanted everybody to know something about where the law is on the incredible documentation that we've received here, because basically Susan has gotten a chapter by chapter by chapter example and recitation of all of the facts underlying the effects of marketing on children, which are, as I said, although they're not deliberately mendacious, they have a very negative impact. You know, we have a federal law right now, the so-called COPPA law, which requires that Sites or services aimed at children age 12 and younger must have parental consent, specific affirmative parental consent. That's a weak law, first of all, because people don't know how old the kids are, and it's not really monitored, it's not really enforced, nor is it necessarily enforceable. We have a British statute, which is recently enacted, which is much better than anything we've ever had. 
age-appropriate design code, it's called, and it's something we should be looking at, the Congress should be looking at as something in, in that direction. Then we have in California, we have the state voters approved the California Privacy Rights Act of 2020. We have the right to privacy in our constitution in California. And it basically is the first comprehensive privacy law that we've ever had. You cannot sell personal information if you have actual knowledge the kid is under 16 years old. If under 13 years old, a parent must authorize really any kind of interaction with the with the child. And then the new California law, which was just enacted, effective in 2024, will change things more. It's a little bit better yet. Poses restrictions on internet companies that serve minors. They design their platforms with the children's well-being in mind. It bars eight common data collection practices that are abusive. And it does other things as well. But it hasn't caught fire with Congress yet. And we got have more to do. And we got to introduce a bill in this year, in 2022, the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018 doesn't cover much. So we, we introduced this bill, AB 2408. And the purpose between 2408 is to end the addiction practices of the internet. That is, they specifically try to addict children. Again, they have private communications with children. Parents are not involved. And as part of the marketing that Susan critiques and that Claire mentions, is to basically keep the customer, manipulate the customer, control the customer. And so they are basically trying to cause addiction. And by the way, I was one of the attorneys against the tobacco industry in the master settlement agreement case. That case was filed by attorneys in New Orleans, famous attorneys, Calvin Fayard and others in New Orleans. And it resulted in a multi-billion dollar master settlement agreement, you know, $200 billion, the big, biggest settlement amount uh, ever collected against any commercial enterprise in the history of the country. And I was very proud to be able to do that. And part of the discovery they did uncovered the tobacco industry deliberately trying to addict children to tobacco. And boy, was it successful. The median age of uh, tobacco addicts was like 15 years of age, 15 to 16 years of age. That was the median age. They were so successful. I don't think Joe Camel inspiration was, was an adult uh, sensitivity. In any event, you had a very successful campaign there, and it's happening now massively in an unmonitored way, and we've got to do something about it. So we have a statute which specifically said you cannot engage in any tactic that tends to or will addict children. And we have the DAs and the AG enforcing it under the Fair Practices Act that is in almost every state. It's called the Little FTC Acts. And I was involved in writing the one in California. And we have, in fact, a real potentially momentous remedy that would work to police, to some extent, the abuses that are going on, particularly those that addict children. And this statute got a 51 to nothing vote in the state assembly in California. And then it got put over to the Senate side. And then the industry began to spend money, I mean, millions and millions and millions of dollars to stop our bill. And they were able to stop it in a way that California and many other states enable such halting. They put in a, what's called a suspense file and they killed it without vote. So nobody had to vote against it. It just died. And that's what happens in California all the time with major important legislation and in other states as well, and in the Congress for that matter. So it's very important that we be aware of that and that we get back on the horse and get these things enacted. Susan, what do you think should be done? What do you think the best tactics would be to end the abuses that are occurring right now? I really believe that there ought to be a law against targeting children with advertising and marketing. I'm sorry, I'm sad that there were a couple of bills in Congress that actually made it out of committee 
that had bipartisan support and were just killed by the Senate um, a couple of days ago, that they weren't perfect bills, but they would have gone a long way to stopping big tech companies from manipulating children. And I'm sorry about that. But I also think it, it we need to have laws that protect children, but what we also need is a massive public health campaign. We need both of those things because um, I think unlike tobacco or alcohol, that it's hard for people to see that these cute cartoon characters or these fun games or apps, it's hard for them to see that they could be harmful for children. And I think what people don't understand is that basically these beloved characters, for instance, are used to sell things to kids. And that there is really almost no place in media, including public media today, where children can go where someone is not trying to sell them something. And so I think we need both. We need a public health campaign on its own that wouldn't work at all because you can't expect one family in isolation to combat a trillion dollar industry. I mean, that's not possible. But we need the public health campaign because I think people need to be educated and we need laws that protect children. I mean, I think what California is doing is incredibly impressive and that the design code that Britain passed is just a remarkably important step toward doing that. And the organization that I founded, which was called Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood, and is now called Fair Play, is working really, really hard to get a design code passed in the United States as well. Why do you think that's the case? Why do I think that what is the case? That it's, it's hard to get something going here. I'll yeah. tell you why. It's because of dark money. It's because these are people who are making a lot of money and dark money is controlling things. And we have the, one of the worst Supreme Court decisions in the history of the world, you know, which basically equates corporations with individuals. It equates corporate entities with private citizens. And they're not the same thing. A corporate entity has a fiduciary obligation. All those in control of it have a fiduciary sacred obligation to maximize the profit and protect the investment of the stockholders. That's what the kind of benefit it is. And you cannot, you know, have a Citizens United type case that equates the two and still have a democracy, really. It's not, that's not a democracy equating the two. And in allowing dark money to control everything, which is what happens, that's why we lost this bill in the California legislature. That's why the bill's that Susan's mentioning have failed in the Congress because they have money, 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 and they're influencing everything with money. We're always worshiping democracy. We are a democracy. We're great. We're wonderful. Raw, raw, raw. You hear that all the time. Bullshit. We're not a democracy. We're an ochocracy. We're a, an entity which is controlled by big business. That's just the, the, this is reality. It shouldn't be. I don't want it to be. We can change it. Anyhow, I feel better now. So uh, I always tell my class, my classes when I'm teaching, I say, it's a successful class if at the end of it, I feel better and you feel worse. So I think I'm doing a good job here. Claire, what do you think could be done to get your book and your message out there as a major part of the culture? To get it out, that's difficult because you have to get the teachers on board. And it's hard to go into the schools to do that. 
I'm still trying to find somebody, some school, maybe a private school, that would use it as a text and then see where we go with the children. You see, the, the children are willing, but the adults are rigid. Have you thought about doing another edition of it, Claire, in the form of a class or a series of lessons for teachers, changing the format a little bit and promoting it that way? I'd be glad to help out. I'll talk to you about that. That's interesting. Oh, I just think that's a fantastic idea. I think that Mm. it would be really helpful to teachers to have that version of your book. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Over the Christmas, I have a special ed teacher. She's a teacher and also she organizes about 10, seven towns here in that district, region one. And she is going to read it with an eye as to how special ed students can benefit from this book or they can use it in classes with special ed. What is special ed? It's autism and other things, you know. Sure. I'm thinking that maybe these special ed students can pave the way. We got a bill through in California about 12 years ago that requires parenting education in schools. And you could write a book that would be guide that such a course or modules or whatever. It was vetoed by the governor (laughs) because he said, this is an issue only for churches and families, period. You know, I took trigonometry in high school. I haven't used it too much. You know, I went to metal shop and learned how to, I was up in Hawaii and I learned how to make these flame things you put in luau's. I haven't used that skill, but almost everyone is going to be an uncle or an aunt or a parent. So why don't we, why don't we talk about that? And, And your text is an excellent focal point for teaching people how to parent for crying out loud. Anyhow, that's an example of a, of a law I'd like to change so that we can have that, what you have to say as part of the curriculum. You know, I think another part of that is child development. I mean, the, the other thing that I think is hard for people to understand and that is corrupted by corporate marketing to kids is, you know, a baby is not the same as a preschooler. A preschooler is not the same as a preteen. A preteen is not the same as a teen. And we need to approach them all in somewhat different ways. I think that that, that that's really important and something that people don't understand. And what the marketing industry does that is so manipulative and insidious and just wrong is they exploit the normal, you know, developmental process I guess, that kids look up to older kids and they want to be like them. So preschoolers want to be like preteens. Preteens want to be like teenagers. Teenagers want to be like young adults. And so in the marketing industry's mind is they say, well, preschoolers want to be like preteens. Let's market to them as though they were preteens. Let's give them what they want. If preteens want to be like teenagers, let's market to them as though they were teenagers. And so you get, for instance, very young girls wearing highly sexualized clothes when they don't have the cognitive wherewithal to understand the message that they may be sending out. And so I think it's not just parenting or that that should be taught in schools. But I think that child development ought to be taught in schools as well. Sure. There's increasing documentation 
of mental health problems, including suicides of teens, because of what's happening with technology right now, what's happening with, with what they're doing with vis-a-vis -vis children. It's something we, we gather together. And I think that what's also important, there has been a lot of focus on teens and on social media, but the habits, media habits start in infancy, really. Sure. You know, there are all these apps marketed for babies. And, you know, infancy is when, you know, when children are the most vulnerable, their brains are growing and developing, and the very architecture of a child's brain is influenced both by what kids do and also by what they don't do. So another problem is that when kids, very young children, are spending so much time with electronic toys or with screens that they're being deprived of the things that we know contribute to healthy development. Being with adults who care about them, exploring the world with all of their senses, being read to, and not from eBooks, because it turns out that the conversations that parents have with kids when they're reading eBooks, especially the ones like with bells and whistles, is that they're not conversations that actually promote literacy. Oh. And also these devices, I mean, you alluded to this in the beginning, Bob, I mean, they're made for individuals to use. And so when parents are reading to a child from a device, what research is showing is that they're kind of jockeying for who's, who's holding the device and parents cuddle less with yeah. kids. Yeah. I mean, that was horrifying to me when I read that. Yeah. Well, you're, you're underlying the vulnerability which interestingly enough, the Supreme, even the Supreme Court is recognized in the Roper v. Simmons case where they said, you're not going to be able to engage in capital punishment for anything a child does because of the prefrontal lobes, because the child's brain isn't, you know, the judgment part of the brain is not in place even until early 20s. So right. it's really, you know, that's an important distinction about children. It doesn't mean I'm, I'm denigrating them. It's just that they're more vulnerable and they've that's got right. to be aware of how vulnerable they are and you've got to protect them and enrich them. And Claire's book is an excellent way to enrich them. Yes. That's for sure. And yeah. your ideas are an excellent way to protect them. We just got to combine them and get something going here in the face of dark money. Anyhow. And I was really glad that Claire focused on preteens, on tweens, yeah. because that is a time, like very young children, they can't think abstractly they tend to believe what they see, but tweens really are at a point where they can start to think more, I think, constructively about what's going on in the world. So I, I think that that's really important. We can't expect young children to protect themselves, or we can't expect young children to take action. That's our job. I think Claire's book accelerates the prefrontal lobe maturation is my own theory anyhow. Wow. Steve, what do you think? Well, actually, I've been monitoring the chat here, and there's an interesting thing as we talk about Claire's book, and somebody in our audience is named L.P. Co. I actually don't know what the gender is there, but says, I love Claire's book. My 14-year-old niece and nephew, who are good readers, refused to read it because of the title, For Tweens. They considered it beneath them. It is truly a shame. Please, if you rework it, consider a different subtitle. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Something like adults are stupid. That, that, that'll read it. <laughs> but that's an interesting comment, I think, because of what Susan, you were saying, 
is that the age group below the next aspires to be the age group above them. And so maybe that subtitle is more for adults than for the people that it's aimed at. And if this audience member is, you know, giving us that feedback. You know, I just saw this article that just enraged me about how smartphones are being marketed to ever younger children. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, really young children, you know, four, five, six, you know, I mean, which is just, you know, ridiculous. But what the people doing the marketing of, of these devices were saying is that kids need to control their own content. And now it said, yes, young children think that tablets are babyish. And that is an example of of what the marketing industry does. They look at a trend and instead of thinking, well, is this good for kids? Is this bad for kids? They think, wow, this is a trend. How can we make money from this? Exactly. And then they make it even more attractive to the adults who love the children because they're telling the adults, well, you know, kids think that tablets are babyish you know, they're going to be unhappy if they have a tablet and young children don't even really need tablets anyway, but they're going to be unhappy if you have a tablet. So you need to get your young child a smartphone or it'll seem like you're not a good parent. I mean, parents are in a really difficult position right now. It's hard to be a parent today. I wanted to know what effect, for example, the FTC just made epic games pay what 520 million over children's privacy and trickery charges that's what the headline says what does all that mean bob does it have an effect because that's just peanuts it can have an effect you've got class actions going that'll have an effect or if you have public officials going you've got ags and da's all over the country with enormous power more than the ftc has by far they can do civil they can do criminal and the statutes are broad enough that they can apply a lot of what goes on here, but they don't, they're not enforcing it in general. You've got a very wealthy, extremely wealthy, powerful industry here, extremely wealthy and powerful. You know, one thing that I think is important about the recent FTC decision is that one of the ways that they like showed that Fortnite is aimed at very young children, not just teenagers, not just adults, is because of the toys. There are Fortnite toys for really young kids. And this, I mean, this that may seem like a small thing, but it's a big deal in the advocacy world. Fair Play has been working for years to use the fact that media companies and tech companies sell toys to young children as an example of how what they're doing is aimed at young children. So I think that I was really, really excited about that. I think it's very clever to call your company Fair Play when it should be called Corrupt Play. And, you know. Yeah, it's, I left Fair Play actually in 2015, but I'm just so proud of what they're doing. Up next, a Q&A with our virtual audience. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, December 23, 2022. I'm Russell Mokhyber. Consumer Reports has found that some dark chocolate 
bars contain cadmium and lead, two heavy metals linked to a host of health problems in children and adults. The chocolate industry has been grappling with ways to lower those levels. To see how much of a risk these favorite treats pose, Consumer Reports scientists recently measured the amount of heavy metals in 28 dark chocolate bars. They detected cadmium and lead in all of them. Consumer Reports tested a mix of brands, including smaller ones such as Alter Eco and Mast, and more familiar ones like Dove and Ghirardelli. For 23 of the bars, eating just an ounce a day would put an adult over a level that public health authorities and consumer reports experts say may be harmful for at least one of those heavy metals. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Native Radio. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman, Bob Felmas, Susan Lynn, Claire Nader, Melissa Bird, and the rest of the June Taylor dancers. We are going to have our Q&A session with the audience. Hannah, start us off. Thank you, Steve. Our first question comes to us from Zach Lang. I just wanted to say thank you for hosting and getting this great group together. I had a, a question, one for Bob and then later one for Susan. But Bob, I was wondering how could a, like a US ratification of the UN's rights of the child affirm protections that aren't yet in place? I don't know whether I'm like, which one would be better to be done first, but could a ratification of, give some backbone to some of these things so that then we could say, now the kids that we know have a right to privacy. Now we know they have a right to bodily autonomy and things well, like it that. Wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a final answer, of course, but it's certainly something we should have done. I mean, we're one of the only, I think, two countries that have failed to do it for crying out loud. And it's insane that we haven't. To me, it's a kind of an ethical issue more than it is an actual effective legal mechanism. Gotcha. Wonderful. Well, yeah, thank you. I, I'm still surprised that we haven't as well. And then, Susan, my other question was, if can consumer protections be updated for today's online marketplace? You know, like when you're shopping online, even doing your grocery shopping, you have to like click through 17, like click for more just to even see the product label. Um, <laughs> and then they're, then they're directing you, oh, we'll ask questions of other users. And so you're like, is this going to harm my kid? And you hear someone who say, I bought it for my grandma and she liked it. And it's like, okay, well, thank you. But so, you know, I didn't, I didn't mean to wander off into space, but is there anything that can be done to protect the marketplace or at least update it? You know, in part of writing Who's Raising the Kids, I went to marketing conferences and and I write about hearing, you know, somebody get up on stage and talk about reducing friction. And to me, as a psychologist, reducing friction, you know, has to do with family therapy or maybe WD-40 or whatever it's called, you know, like not being able to close my windows or something like that. But basically, you know, the goal is to make buying things as seamless and easy as possible. I think it's Jeff Bezos who popularized, you know, that idea. And so they're not interested in giving you information. They're interested in selling. And that's why you have to go through all those click-throughs to get to the label and whatever. But I would imagine that that is something that could be rectified by law, Bob. I mean, is that possible? Sure. Yeah. Our next question comes to us from Rich Stevenson. Well, hello, everybody. My children at school are bombarded by commercial interest and privacy in the public schools. How can we stop that situation? When I did some substitute teaching a few years back, and I, I was just shocked that, that the schools were just commercial interests were just ran things in the school, you know. I guess they found a way to gain influence. I don't know how, but we should get those commercial interests out of schools. 
Any way to do that? I absolutely agree with you. And the commercialization of children's education is just so troubling. And basically what happens is that schools are underfunded and people send what are called sponsored educational materials, for instance, into schools. Teachers get them. They're very slick. The teachers are using ancient textbooks. And so what we're getting are, you know, corporate influenced, even curriculum for children. And schools think that if they make a deal like with Coca-Cola to sell Coca-Cola in schools, even though childhood obesity is a major public health problem, they think that they're going to get a lot of money. But actually what the research shows is that they get very little. I mean, it's a scam. It's just, it's a terrible scam. And and it undermines critical thinking. If you have a corporation that is you think is supporting your school, you're not going to probably want to take close looks at that corporation's labor practices or, or the products that it sells. I mean, if you're depending on them or you think you're depending on them for money. So I think that the advertising and marketing in schools, the commercialization of our education system is really terrible. And now with big tech, you know, they have this whole thing that a colleague of mine calls hardware dumping, where, you know, they give kids Chromebooks, you know, early on, and every child should have a Chromebook. And Google has all of these educational apps, you know, that are are used in schools. And the purpose of those really is lifetime brand loyalty. You know, that's what Google wants. I mean, they you know, you get a child when they're young and you'll have them for the rest of their life. I mean, that's like a corporate aphorism in a way. I agree with you. We have a youth in the audience who submitted a question. Nico Les. I'm in seventh grade, actually. And in sixth grade, I learned about cookies and computers and how they collect data from websites. We had like a digital literacy class. And I didn't know about this before, and I sort of wished I'd learned earlier, because now I turn off cookies anytime I'm on a website, but I didn't know before. And I was wondering, how do you decide when to teach kids like about things like that? That's a great question. Claire? Actually, Nico, I would ask you. I would throw that right back at you and say, when do you think is a good time? When would you be? Obviously, you're in seventh grade, and you were able to do it. Could you have done it earlier? I think... I have a sister who's in fifth grade, and I think maybe, I think fifth grade, I think, I mean, it's different for different people, honestly, but I think it's useful to learn, and not just specifically cookies, but anything similar to that about what you guys are talking about, big tech companies, and all kinds of things like that. I think I started using a Chromebook when COVID happened. For me, I was in fourth grade, and I started using a computer, and so I see, so even though I don't want to on websites and things I had to to do all my schoolwork. So I started using websites and using cookies and all these things very early. And so I think like my sister's in fifth grade, she uses a Chromebook a lot during school. I think so fifth grade, maybe earlier. And Nico, what would you tell your fifth grade sister? I would say she should be really careful about the website she's on and try and like, I want to say, just, just educate herself about it. Like my I grandpa would, actually sent let, me this Nico, let me ask you this. How would you explain what cookies are to her? 
or any any kind of these tracking things why that's important how would you explain cookies to us yeah yes, i don't even um, know what it is <laughs> i would say a cookie is like a small piece of information that a website that you're on on your computer or ipad or whatever device it's a small piece of information that the website keeps that almost like learns about you and it keeps it until the next time you're on that website, which seems okay at the beginning because it can help with things. Like it can help remember like what language you speak if you change it to a different language, but it can also mean that that website can then tell another website, oh, this person is say this age and lives in America. And that can help a new website to be like, oh, I'm gonna show this person ads to get them to buy this thing. And so I think it's really important when you're like 12 and or 10 that you know that like, if it's marketing this thing to you that maybe your parents don't know about because you're on a computer, it's really important that you know it's not, it doesn't have your best interests at heart. And it's really just, it's not, it shouldn't really know these things about you're, you. You're constantly being asked to agree with, agree to cookies all the time. And it's not limited. I mean, it, it, if, if it were a cookie to do this at uh, this time for the next 10 minutes, fine. But it's, you give up your privacy, you give up information about yourself being transmitted. So cookies are a very, very important part of reforms here that are necessary for privacy. Nico, that was a really great explanation. And I think you should get in touch with Fair Play. They have a, a youth branch, and I think they'd be interested from hearing to, in hearing from you. The website is fairplayforkids.org. Thank you. Nico, you are an example of what Claire calls an inspiring tween. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> She's probably read her book. <laughs> yeah, very good. If a parent in a small town said... I'm disconnecting the internet. You're going to spend all your time in the library. You're going to spend, instead of coming home and sitting on the internet and doing social media, you can satisfy all your curiosity in our small town library. After a year of that, what would the child have missed out on? A lot. Yeah. How, how old is the child? Well, what do you mean a lot? A lot is happening in the universe that is accessible via the internet. And right. it's not, you know, a, a lot, a lot of education, a lot of information, a lot of, you know, is, is there. I don't think depriving children of that, that access is necessarily the answer. No, well, what, not the answer, but, but you can read the paper in the library. Exactly. <laughs> but, but, you know, and, and I mean, one thing that, that really troubles me is now, of course, we have books being banned, librarians and teachers right. being censored. Well, I'm, I'm gonna, the tech I, companies I, I, can say anything they want to kids. What a, Let me go back to my it? original question, because I think Claire Nader agrees with me. If you were to fast and say no internet for a year, all your knowledge will come from what is available inside a library. Claire Nader, do you agree? I think your child would be better off for a year getting all their information from the newspapers, magazines, books, games available inside a, a local public library. I'm not so sure the internet has anything better to offer other than immediacy. 
Well, first of all, you've got a lot of, even if they give you good information or you can get good information, you get all the distractions with the ads and this and that. I don't know. I have never had a computer, and I don't feel uneducated. Now, I didn't know what a cookie was. I did not know what a cookie was. Well, there you go, in Claire. The, in the lingo. But I, I know, I mean, I heard it, so I will know it. I will ask about it. I hate to be, and I'll be quiet. But, well, first of all, you don't hate to be. Let's just start there. I don't what? I'm saying to David, you love to do this. Go ahead. The solution is your local public library. That is, I think, is the solution, is disconnect. If you're a parent, disconnect the internet and take your child to the local public library. Everything your child needs is at the local public library. It's not on the internet. I don't know what's on the internet that is of any value to a child. I don't agree at all. Okay. Clarinator, would you back me up on this, please? I think, look, it's like a car. You are a certain age, you can learn how to drive a car and get a license. Um, you don't do that when you're 10. The rules don't say that. You can't. But when you're on the Internet, you have to have some, some idea of discretion. You have to understand all the things we've been. We don't have to get so detailed with children, but you can drive it. Does that make sense to you? You can drive it. It doesn't drive you. Now, it'll drive you if you get distracted. And there are a lot of things to distract you, I understand. Yes, and I will point out that you can't get the Ralph Nader Radio Hour in the library. That's right. <laughs> well, there are a lot of things you can't get in the library. Huge numbers no, of things. That's right. You can get the internet yeah. in the library. Yeah, well, there yeah you go. that's what I was thinking. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. There you go. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, the kids, I mean, one problem that my sister's a librarian and one, you know, things that is concerning is, you know, kids coming in and basically using the computers and not, you know, going to the books. I mean, I think libraries are so important and Google search is not a library. I mean, and Google is not a librarian. And one thing that kids gain by using libraries is relationships with librarians and with adults <laughs> who can help them, you know, explain things. But I think that depending on, uh, David, I asked you about age. For young children, there isn't anything really that very young children can benefit from being online, except possibly video chatting with the adults who love them. But for older kids, you know, you take a small town and, and a parent turns off the internet what the parent and the child are dealing with is, is this child going to be isolated socially? What's the impact of that? I mean, and I said this earlier, one family in isolation can't combat this zillion dollar industry doing everything that they can, you know, to, as a colleague of mine said, make parents' lives absolutely miserable. Right. But if we so, had, it would be civic engagement, real civic engagement at a at a library, if people were forced to meet and see each other in person, not virtually. But if it's just one family doing it, it's not people. I mean, the whole town would have to, would right. have to say, you know, that they're, you know, turning off 
you know, computers. I, right. I, think, right. I, I mean, I think it's sad that if kids aren't using their libraries, you know, which are wonderful resources, but for older kids, I don't think that banning them from, just so uh, from the internet, I don't think that's the solution. And also, it's that is, what they, that is what Silicon Valley does. I mean, the darling children of our Silicon Valley plutocrats do not allow their own kids to either limit their exposure or, you know. Yeah, and I know, and everybody talks about Steve Jobs and how wonderful you know, oh, well, not how wonderful, just the irony when he was asked what his kids thought about the iPad, he said they'd never seen one. But the message that, that I mean, that's a libertarian solution in a way. The message is that parents, you know, it's all up to parents and parents should just say no. And, you know, that's that's not, that's it not. It doesn't work. If I may, I think Claire's comparison to a car is is a solid one kids can't drive cars, kids can ride in cars, and there are all sorts of protective measures in place to help them ride safely. And at different ages, they have a little bit more freedom in the car. And right. I think perhaps, you know, the internet being called the information superhighway, not the biggest stretch to use the car as a metaphor. That's a clever comment. That was good, Hannah. Thank, Thank you. you. Hannah wins the show. Okay. Yeah. Hannah wins the show. Steve, David comes wrap in it up. Take us home. <laughs> we're going to wrap it up. And Hannah's going to do a victory lap, but on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> a virtual, virtual victory lap. A virtual victory lap. All right. So Hannah wins. And Claire. So, see, I win by making Claire the winner. That's okay. right. That's I'm, right. You, I'm taking credit for, you, for you, her. Very clever. Very clever. Claire pulled you over the finish line there. Right. Claire wins right, so. the metaphor. I want to just say one more thing. Yes. I think would wrap up something for yeah. me anyway. Sherry Turkle, who's done a lot of work from MIT in this field and who's out with the Empathy Diaries herself. I haven't seen that book yet. She wrote a little blurb for me when she read the book. And she said that she made the point that I was trying to say tweens can be change agents and so on. But she said that I was too modest because the book, You Are Your Own Best Teacher, is for a family sit-down. Across the generations, we must be more curious about who controls our media, climate, food, and politics. What is keeping us back from confidence in our ability to act? We are at a break-the-glass moment. This is a necessary conversation. I thank think it says it all, yeah. I want to thank Bob Felmuth, Susan Lynn, and Claire Nader for such a fascinating panel discussion. Bob, how best can people reach you? Well, they just put Bob Felmuth in Google. There's only one of me. And Susan Lynn, what's the best way to reach you? My website is susanlynn.net. So just susan at susanlynn.net. I'm eager to hear from you all. And Claire, they can go for your book to inspiringtweens.com. Is that correct? That's correct. Or go to your local library in a car that your parents are driving. <laughs> or, or, exactly. walk, or walk. <laughs> or walk. We walk in our town. <laughs> yeah. And Melissa, put in another plug for the Tort Museum. <laughs> well, if you want to come in person, you can visit Winstead, 654 Main Street and that's 06098, or virtual tour, 
at www.tortmuseum.org. We also do tours by appointment, and you can come see some of our interesting wares in our gift shop, which is the website as well. Thanks, Steve. Thank you for your questions, audience. Thank you for showing up. Thank you, listeners. I want to thank our guests again, Susan Lynn, Claire Nader, and a special thank you to the American Museum of Tort Law Director, Melissa Bird, our guest moderator, Robert Felmuth, and everyone in our virtual audience. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, we got a lot of extra stuff, so stay tuned for that bonus material we call The Wrap-Up. A transcript of the radio version of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website, soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, you can get it for free. Go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. And the American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore their exhibits, take the virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. To get your copy of You're Your Own Best Teacher, go to inspiringtweens.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each show, go to the comments section at ralphnaderradiohour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. We'll pick some standout comments, ask Ralph for his response and post his reply. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, when our guest will be Dr. James Kahn, and we'll talk to him about the health cost calculator he developed that shows how most people can save big on Medicare for All. Ralph will be with us. Until then... Oh,